Hello, welcome to Pod Songs. I'm Jack Stafford, and I interview inspiring people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Now, I'm here in the south of Italy, and it's super hot, and I'm afraid we're a little bit behind schedule with the production. My producer, Maurizio Sanicola, is not able to mix at normal speed, so I'm having to introduce you to a few episodes from the archives, which if you haven't heard them already, I think you're really going to enjoy them. Today is with Stephen C. Hayes, a clinical psychologist, one of the founders of Acceptance Commitment Therapy. He's written about 44 books and then nearly 600 scientific articles. He's a legend in the field of psychology. So, And this was my second interview, so I really started at the top. So I hope you enjoy this. Also want to mention a few other things, a bit of housekeeping. Um, I've just We've been working on another huge project to do a video for Tom Rosendahl, who's a British singer-songwriter I really like, and we got together with some of his other fans and made a video in his style. So if you go to my YouTube channel, uh, Jack Stafford Pod Songs, just search on YouTube, you'll find it. And that video is, is coming out tomorrow. So you'll think you should check that out. It's really going to be something. Um, what else? Christmas episode. I wanted to do, because these are, these are all interviews with people in service to others. So I'd like to do interviews with friends of fans who are not necessarily famous, but are in service to others. So kind of like ordinary people who you would, who you think deserve a song and an interview. We just do a few episodes at Christmas Maybe maybe one episode with sort of half an hour interviews, or it depends. It's kind of a flexible format. But if you send me a message on my website, jackstafford.org or podsongs.com or through anchor.fm forward slash podsongs, you can send a voice message if you don't like typing. Then we can see, get some interest, see who proposed some people, and we'll we'll write a song about them. We'll get make a short list. Maybe get people to vote on it, and then we'll yeah we'll just do that for as a different as a Christmas present to to some of the listeners. So have a think if you know somebody who's inspiring, who lives in service to others, an unsung hero with a great story, who would who deserves a song. All right, I think that's everything. So as always, please share this episode with your friends. Anything you can to help promote it will be much appreciated. Please enjoy this episode with Stephen C. Hayes. And you uh, sent me your book to read, so I've been going through it, but it's, uh, I'm only halfway through, I must confess. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it actually going, gets into some art and literature kind of things you know music i think is very you know we're dealing with some of these deeper symbolic issues with uh with art and literature and music and, um, oh it's fantastic it touches on it a little bit at the end of the book but uh, yeah no i'm sure it's a i'm sure it's a a years of study this this is a hot you're trying to sum up all your teaching so yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's a deep dive but i i've seen your ted talks and they were amazing yeah, they, yeah, those are uh, from the heart kind of things. Um, so, well, I would ask you to dis- I would ask you to describe, you know, 
how you came into this, but I think I should just advise people to look at those TED talks because it's, it's so fantastic how you, 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 you go on stage and I, at one point you sit down on stage in front of this huge audience and talk about how you suffered an, an emotional breakdown. Yeah. And it's very powerful. I mean, that must have taken some, that's a powerful speech. Well, that was hard, actually. You know, right five minutes before I'm this far away from my wife saying, I can't do this. You know, and the, and the thing that I couldn't do, you probably could guess if you've seen the talk, is the scream. Because mm -hmm. uh, that scream had come out of my mouth when we, I was caught in a machine at work and almost uh, killed when I was uh, 19. And... Um, it's a very odd sounding thing, you know, like this sort of primitive, you know, like Tarzan falling off the cliff type scream or something. I'm dating myself with a Tarzan reference, but, and then at that night on the carpet, and then number three is in that TED talk where I do it on purpose. And I didn't practice it. I just refused to practice it. And um, my wife knew what, what, why that would be hard. And she said, um, you know, just be yourself. So I got out there and I, I tried to channel something so people could kind of hear the note of what despair sounds like. Yeah, it was very profound. I don't want to, I'm never going to do it again. I'm not no. going to do that. No. Sound, I hope, I pray, has <laughs> never has to come out of my mouth again. No. I'll, I'll watch out standing near cliffs. <laughs> I don't want to hear myself on the way down that sound. No, but it, I mean, you must have got such a reaction from the audience afterwards that they, that how you, you know, that, that helped so many people, I'm sure. I've actually had emails from people around the world who, uh, who know what hit hitting bottom feels like and they felt as though although that's not the way it came out with, with them that they could relate to it just uh, emotionally they they could feel it of, of that sense of uh, desperation and no way out you know but but for you for you and for all your patients and for, and for everyone reading your book it's um i mean it's we're glad you hit rock bottom because you've you formulated this whole theory of, um, well what i did bring to it you know it's not actually uncommon i mean hitting bottom bottom is not uncommon it's common as dirt people do it all the time um the only thing is that because of my science background i was able to bring something to it to really begin to try to think in a different way about how did i end up there and what is this way out which is really a way in and um you know but and so instead of writing about my solution or what i did or whatever i tried to get focused on what are the processes of change that predict um the trajectories of human lives and uh, try to bring my kind of analytic uh western science mind to it so that's that put me on a long journey that puts me here yeah because at the time you were you were a clinical psychologist um you'd you'd studied all these um freudism freud freud all these techniques cognitive behavior and 
you know, you were very deep into all these traditional theories. And then you, you said that you, you realized this isn't working and you created a new, new, and you did try to do a paradigm shift in the, in the, in the field of psychology, no? Well, and it wasn't like I knew what the answers were that, you know, there's a, I tell the story in the act where we went out early because that, that scream is 1981 by 82 or 83, me and my lab, just about five, six uh, kids. Those was the only people who would be interested in this did a couple of the earliest, what we now call act trials. We did three of them, you know, one in pain, uh, one in, uh, 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 weight control, one in depression. The only one I published was the one in depression because I, my first doctoral student, Rob Zettel, needed to get a job. The other ones <laughs> I didn't publish, even though they came out well, because to me, it wasn't a matter of uh, method. It was a matter of process. And so the part of what I've tried to do is understand just this. I mean, why does the human mind function the way it does in such a way that it's such a powerful thing for us and helpful to us in so many ways, and yet we're the only species that know how to suffer amidst plenty. We're the only one who leaves the planet by our own hand. Uh, you know, how could that possibly be? And it required all the, going all the way down to uh, my students and I called it the basic slide because we kept asking questions. We early on we were talking about how verbal rules dominate over experience. Mm -hmm. That was a, a door in. But then you want to know well what's a verbal rule? And then it is well, what's verbal anyway? Well what's language? Well what's cognition? What's a word? What's a symbol? <laughs> and and we came up with an answer that's different. I mean and we have a three hundred year journey inside western science of trying to figure out what you and i are doing right now mm -hmm. and trying to apply things like association and uh you know neural connectivity and so forth to understanding that but not in ways that then ended up being able to do anything powerful and changing human lives and uh, the act journey took me in a different direction we ended up with a theory of cognition which today has three or four hundred studies behind it and if you have an autistic spectrum disordered child who's not able to speak, it could be helpful in bringing that child into the verbal community. If you wanted to raise your IQ and help you do that, send you a website, about six months of work, you can raise your IQ. But it also gave us the tools then to try to figure out how to unhook the, the parts where the mind sort of drives you off the edge of a cliff and, and learn to sort of uh, have this tool without having it tool you, you know, but to, to be able to use it without being used by it. And you end up often in places where monks and others were there long ago talking about yeah, some Yeah, watching habits. the breath, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, but now with an understanding of how it happens that allows us to do some things that are you know, maybe not 10-day silent retreats that, by the way, <laughs> much as we want to, people on the factory floor are just not going to do it. I mean, yeah, they don't have, have to funds, speak in their language. Time. You know, so, so we're trying to put into the West methods that only monks used in the East, and they were given alms to do it. The normal folks didn't do it. You know, normal Buddhists don't do this. I mean, they're pushing flags and cracks and giving alms to the monks to do it but we're trying to do it in google 
and it's fine it's fine so far as it's fine i mean that's their fellow travelers and we put contemplative practice methods in most of that work but we can put things into people's hearts in 30 seconds that will help them catch how this voice within has uh, dominated them so how would uh, because i've 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 just released an album of songs about uh, the mind um uh, they, I haven't just, they're all, they're called master, uh, are you the master of your mind? You're not the voice in your head, background worry, things like that. But I'm still yeah. describing, I'm still describing the problem. But you, you've gone, you're describing, you're, you've got practical tools for the solution. So could, perhaps you could. Yeah, but just catching the voice. I mean, that voice in your head and um, is huge. Well, because at the point, at the point at which you catch the voice in your head, which is, not only guiding your behavior and telling you what to do and criticizing you and telling you when you do it right or doing it wrong, it's also saying, I'm you. Mm-hmm. And saying it in a voice that's so familiar <laughs> that it seems quite plausible that that voice is you. After all, you've been listening to it and speaking it. I mean, obviously, it's part of you. It isn't coming from the ether for as long as you've had that voice, which is probably right about the time that I hear now shows up as an integrated thing, which is when consciousness shows up around in a verbal sense with around age three. And so uh, if you can help people just catch that there's a voice, Mm -hmm. well, now you have at least the listener and the voice being listened to. And that little part of the listener is the seed from which all this kind of mindfulness and values and uh, flexible attention and emotional openness, cognitive flexibility, that's the seed from which it opens. It's the seed of spirituality, of connection between people, of being able to think about what's happening with people suffering on the other side of the planet or what will happen to your children if global warming continues or maybe your children's children. I mean, you can move consciousness around Mm -hmm. because of the part of you that can witness the voice within. And so it's really important to be writing songs about that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you said in your book that it really helps to give the voice a name to get that help to get that detachment. Yeah, because if you catch that you have the voice... And you want that voice. I mean, you do when you're fixing your card or, you know, planning an album or, you know, doing your taxes. You want that voice. You just don't want to disappear into it. Right. Because it's not safe. It, it, it doesn't know how to live a whole human life. Mm-hmm. It's a repertoire of behaviors that's integrated and hangs out together. It can evaluate, predict, judge. But it can't do the least little thing. I mean, of for example, it doesn't know how to look at a sunset and say, wow. It looks at a sunset and says, mm, too much pink. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's p- parts of us get smothered by it. And, um, you know, if you can bring your awareness to it and then get a little bit of separation that's not defensive and dissociative, but allows perspective so that you can take what's useful and leave the rest. So giving a name does that because somebody came to you and said, hey, here's what you got to do. You would know full well to listen, to use it if it's useful, and to not use it if it's not useful. 
and that's not what happens. I mean, we can turn the keys to the car over to that voice if I'm mixing metaphors, but you know what I mean, where, where whatever it says goes, and now our life is out of control. Um, ironically, in the context of trying to get control over stuff you don't need to control, which is what the voice tries to do, tries to turn your life into a problem to be solved rather than a sunset to be appreciated. So would you say, uh, you know, because you're a psych, you're a scientist, you're a, where are you on the spirituality spectrum? You know, if this, if, if you divide, if there is a voice, so that is not me, that is not the I, then you, yeah. you, are you the I as a soul, spirit? Well, in one sense, and we've actually done some research on this, the, uh, there's two, I'll back up a little bit, in the theory of language that underlies act, language ends up being learned relating, not learned associating. And that changes a lot of things. Um, one thing that makes it very implausible that you can get in there and start erasing thoughts and eliminating them because it's too vast a network and it does too many things. It's like trying to rearrange a spider web that's as big as your house. Uh, you know, but uh, this uh, uh, question of are you distinct from the voice or is the voice within you has been researched and it turns out uh, the more transformational place to go is it's a distinct feature and it's within you. So, so f f the relating part of uh, theory of language, it's better to think of it not just as one of distinction, but one of inclusion. So think of yourself like mayor of a city. Okay. You know, it, and, and it, what if, like, the whole city, in some, some sense, is you, including things rumbling around the basement, you know, like racist jokes, to just fit a moment right now with uh, what's going on worldwide, and especially here in the U.S. with Black Lives Matter, and really kind of looking at what do we do about racism. I talk about it in the book. You know, those jokes are doing their work when you're asleep. They're moving things around. Whether you like it or not, they're in your dreams. Whether you like it or not, yeah? Mm -hmm. And so if you just say the real me is the spiritual I hear nowness, the ineffable, edgeless, no thing, everything, because mm -hmm. it's edgeless, it's not thing-like. That, by the way, was the first paper ever written on ACT. It was called Making Sense of Spirituality in 1984. Oh. Ironically, published in the journal Behaviorism. So it's kind of a geeky take on, on what that, you know, where spirituality comes from uh, cognitively. Uh, 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 you know, just within my frame of the Western science, I'm not trying to speak to people's faith traditions, you know, dominating way. I don't want to say it's really just this, but the part of the elephant that I get to describe is the Western science part. But uh, as it showed up to me, and you saw it on the night of the carpet, uh, a TED talk, it was in, kind of in a frame of distinction. I don't know who you are, you know, but yeah. you can't make me do this, you know, where I, I catch the voice and distinguish myself from it. But, it, but the next shoot a fall is one of inclusion. No, that that voice is echoing my history, my um, experiences, 
And I want to be able to have it with me because it's helpful when I'm trying to solve problems. It's just, it's not helpful when I be, allow it to, to claim that it's me and I become the problem. So, you know, I, I don't like ontology at all. I don't think language is really about the world in a sense. We're living in the real world, but we're partitioning it. And for our own pragmatic purposes, you can't even trust what your eye sees. You know, you're evolved. We could be living in something more like the matrix, you know, with falling green numbers than the, than what we see when we open our eyes. As long as we survive, evolution will pick it. It doesn't have to pick what's real. I mean, there may be some quantum quirky, you know, something going on here that even physicists have a hard time getting to with their instruments because, you know, our sensory and perceptual way of coming into it is just a way in. So I don't want to say what anything is really. And I, back to your question, I, the, it turns out we've done research on this. The best way to think about who you are is one in which this sense of spirituality of consciousness is distinct from and includes all of it. Okay. You, I heard you had a good bus driver analogy where yeah. all these passengers. Yeah, it's a very practical way to think about it. If you just think about driving somewhere, if you were driving a bus, you know, and you've got all kinds of passengers on there, you know, they get on uh, of their own accord. Uh, bus drivers don't usually get to pick. Uh, you know, you pay the fee, you get on, and it turns out the only fee you have to pay is showing up and experience. You're in. Mm -hmm. You know, if anything happens to you over the next day, it's in for life because <laughs> <laughs> there's no delete button. Yeah. You know, so, and if they're, they're going to talk and argue and you say, turn left, turn right, etc. You as the driver, you know, hear that. And, uh, you know, where is this bus going is up to where the, you know, uh, the destination is, what the direction is. And you get to choose that just like a driver spins that little thing on the front of a bus or nowadays pushes the electronic things to pull the destination up on so people can see where it's going. You get to say that, you know, I'm about creating love in the world or creating an appreciation of beauty in the world or creating cooperation in the world or, or you know, whatever it is that you're up to. And many different things probably, you get to say that. And, uh, and that issue of distinction and inclusion fits right there. On the one hand, no, the driver is not the passengers. The person who's listening and choosing directions is this deeper sense of you on the one hand. On the other hand, that bus is the whole of you, including <laughs> things that don't even, you don't even notice. Or there's things going on in your epigenetic regulation of your genes right now. This conversation is literally changing your expression of your genome right now. You're not aware of that, but you're aware of the effects of that. And that's part of the bus too. It's kind of like the, you know, the, what it's composed of and how the engine runs and so forth. The culture that you swim in. I mentioned the Black Lives Matter, you know, and, and we're looking now at some of our heroes you know george washington had slaves you know mm. you know we we have we look afresh at for example what's inside that bus includes your your cultural history mm. 
some of which even in the heroes we pick is creepy as hell you know and so we have to well not have to but it's our sort of task to show up to the whole of it sorry for that long rant but it's no no you know, it's a good both no, distinct never... from and including yeah and you never know who you have at the back of the bus hiding under a seat from yeah, you well, you make these secret deals, you know, and the, and you really want to renounce them. Of uh, tell you what, I'll uh, I'll go where you say as long as you don't show your face. Mm. You know, fear might say, "Don't go there, don't aspire for that, don't reach out, don't have that, don't be so bold." I mean, maybe that next project is beyond you, or you're going to do horribly if you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you may make a little deal of, okay, fear, as long as you stay down, I'll, I'll <laughs> turn the bus in the direction you say. Yeah, but now your life is being limited in a way that doesn't allow you to be whole and free. I mean, what if, um, you know, you had an album to do that required reaching out to somebody who was really famous and you know that it would work. If you could get it together, you know that, that that would be really scary to make that call and probably you'll be brushed off because... They won't want to listen to you. Why would it blah, 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 blah. Well, then your trajectory is being driven by the passengers, not by you. You do want to listen to their voices. I mean, if they say, hey, you haven't done your taxes and you're going to get a fine. Um, you're in Italy. There, there's, a, there's a cultural tradition <laughs> of not paying your taxes. That's a bad example. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're brilliant at it, <laughs> my, my uh, Italian colleagues. But um, yeah, it, you you want to have the voice uh, available to you. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, it's not their bus. Yeah, that's very empowering, you know, because we we all want what's on the top of the bus, what's the destination. We want to yeah. predetermine where we're going because. We, we're all going to drive the bus to a beautiful location in, you know, in the mountains or somewhere, somewhere special. And we're going to have a wonderful trip, but we're all just driving through the suburbs, dropping off everyone. Well, but what's turns out what's on the, on the front, it may have a destination, but if you get there, it would have another destination. So the safest way to think about it is a direction. Like what if you, if you're, if you had to, if you could put on your bus, something like West, East, South, or North. You don't know how you're going to get there yet. And you don't know what trajectory you'll be on yet. And when you head in that direction, even if you arrive at a destination, there's more of that direction to go. If you pick east or west, it fits as a good metaphor. No matter how far west you go, there's more west to go, right? So if I go west from where I am right now, in a few hours, I'll be in San Francisco. Yeah, but if I head on the bus, I just want to be in San Francisco. What do I do once I'm in San Francisco? When I'm just going to sit there like a lump. <laughs> you know, that's no fun. I mean, the no. game that we play in life is one where we're not yet where we're headed. At the point at which that's no longer true, you're done. So as the, we play these games, and, and it's lovely. I mean, games are about the most fun things humans know how to do. I mean, even three-year-olds know how to do it. You know, I'll get to that tree before you touch me. Why? It's just fun because you create a context where something hasn't happened yet that by pretense is of importance. You know, in the end, uh, uh, when you touch the tree or so forth, the game's over. So 
be- better to have games that have a long trajectory, like uh, heading west, being loving, being creative, bringing beauty into the world. When does that end? You sort of say, okay, done enough yeah. of that. Time to hurt people. I don't think so. <laughs> Oh, but if you, if you if you treat it as a destination, like, hey, I want to get married, or hey, I want to have kids, that's yeah, much more dangerous. Mm-hmm. But uh, So it isn't necessarily going to be beautiful, because you don't know the route. And if you pick any destination that's of importance, any of them, it turns out it's going to be sweet and sad. It's going to be sweet and sour. It's going to mm-hmm. have lots of things. And if, if you put the being loving on the front of your bus, uh, you're going to feel vulnerable as hell and you're going to be hurt. I guarantee you, you're going to be hurt. Okay. It'll just hurt even more (laughs) if that's what's there in your heart to do and you don't do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Gosh, I think we we need to speak every week now. I think uh, because (laughs) I get a feeling you're you're 10 steps ahead of me because you've been thinking... It's been your job full time for years, thinking about the mind and talking to your students and you know, so every anything I can say, you've already you, you've already been down this road. So yeah, shrinks. You know, you don't want to talk to shrinks. So blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's fascinating. Well, the mind is fascinating, and and you know it's kind of cool. When I, if I could tell the story, it's, this seems relevant. When, when I, I first knew I wanted to be a psychologist was in, in high school. And it, I was, uh, you know, I'd later become editor of the literary magazine in, in college. I was interested in art and literature and all that, but I was interested in science. I was like, what field could you do both, you know? And my hero, my initial psychology hero, was a guy named Abraham Maslow, who was all about peak experiences and you know how to live a more a, more, a rich life and so forth. And uh, I thought psychology might do it. it. Turned out to be really right on, because uh, you know human behavior and human mentality is about everything. It's about what you do. That's behavior, too. It's about what is going on right now in the COVID crisis. It's about what's going on with uh, racism. It's about how do we step up the global warming. It's about, you know, and I get that physical technology and all that is important. I'm glad there's physicists and so forth doing their inventions and all that. You and I get to talk across thousands of miles because of it in real time. How crazy is that? (laughs) And it also means... Everybody around the world can see suffering in real time. Mm -hmm. Everyone around the world can compare themselves to others. You want to see gold-plated doorknobs and gold toilet seats in their billionaires' bathrooms? You can do that. Mm -hmm. And you can have a constant flow of judgment and comparison. And you got that toxic triad of pain, judgment, and comparison. And... um, uh, uh, that, that you, you 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 are even in animal models to the degree you can do it uh, headed towards a train wreck you're headed towards uh, a lot of suffering so um you know psychology and behavior applies to everything that we do good time to be a psychologist good time to be a psychologist although i look at it and i really wince because 
I mean, for example, here in the U.S., we've got this big COVID crisis. I look at the big press conferences, blah, 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 and the epidemiologists or the virologists are saying, don't touch your face. That's behavior, dude. How are you going to make that happen? Nothing. Mm. Just don't do it. Didn't you ever, did anybody ever have kids? <laughs> I mean, what happens when you tell a kid, don't do it? They do it. That's what happens. Don't put beans in yours. Don't say that to your kids. They're going to try it. You know, it's so the behavioral scientists, you know, have been pushed off into the little corner of, oh, you deal with mental illness. Yeah. And otherwise, it's just, uh, they're silent. And, and, and I, I just, I hope we get beyond that because uh, behavioral scientists are partly responsible for it. We've talked geek, and we've sometimes talked things that are not really useful. But there's a lot of things we have to say that are useful. Uh, maybe even how to stop touching your face or wear a mask. Or... It's funny, stop touching your face. It turned out I did research on it 40 years ago accidentally. Ah. And I developed a method that will keep you from touching your face. <laughs> well, now's the time to republish. Well, it's really, really easy. It's the world's simplest thing to do. I was doing it for another reason, but I, I tested it in several experiments, and it lasts up to nine months as long as you keep doing it. Get a little sheet or a recording device. You can use your iPhone or whatever, or a golf counter or something, and count every time you touch your face. Okay. That's it. <laughs> That's it. It'll reduce it by 95% in about five or ten minutes, and it'll stay as long as you keep doing it. And if you actually have a, a, a device that's pretty visible mm -hmm. and reminds you to be checking in and looking, uh, that alone will have about 80% of the effect, even if you don't record it. Turns out you don't have to record it all that accurately. You just have to try. Mm. That's it. I did a blog about it early on in the COVID thing because it's the only evidence-based method other than wearing a dog collar, you know, those things that you put on your dogs, <laughs> those cones to keep them from biting on their, on their uh, paw if you have to replay, you know, have your vet do something with your pet. I think, I think Fauci's got them lined up. He wants them to those next. Yeah, that's way where those big yeah. cones. Yeah. I would be more happy with that. At least you'd say, don't use your face, and here's a freaking transparent cone to wear. We'll just be cone heads. For... But don't just get up there, dude, and say that without it ever occurring to you. You're asking people to do behavior. That's not your field. And we know people won't do what you say. What? That's not your job is to get people to not do it. Your job isn't just to tell them. But you know, physical scientists, they haven't thought about it. And, it's, and now in the U.S., we've got people who deliberately don't wear masks. Right, right. They're proud of it. Mm. You know, it's, woo, woo, I'm not wearing a mask. Of course, we've got an idiot encouraging people to do it, who happens to lead the country. But, but that was so predictable. Mm. Anyway, I'm on a rant. But the rant is just... Yeah, I, I wish what you said is true, that it, you know, we've thought about it so much. So, it, you know, we've thought about it, but we're somehow not even in the conversation when we're do needed. You think that, do you think that, uh, as you know, you get the leaders you deserve, you, you get the, the food system that you deserve as a collective consciousness, as a culture, you, you get the medical system, the medicine that you deserve, because that fits in with your 
the way you think and your vibration? Well, actions have consequences. You know, I'm a behaviorist, and that's the core core of behavioral thinking is you do what you do and you get what you get, and your job is to open up to that. And if if you don't like the consequences, change what you do. And that is at all levels from you as an individual to you as a, in, in your relationship with your people that you love to family, to neighborhood, to community, to nation, to, to world. But I wouldn't say deserve quite in the way of sort of being judgmental, like ha ha ha, you deserve that in the, in the sense that, yeah, we, we get what we do and we need to step up to that and take responsibility for it in the original way that that word was written, which is ability to respond, take response ability for it. And look at if we don't like the, the results, we're gonna to have to change what we do. And that includes how we talk to each other and how we language about it, how we even think about these problems, how we organize things. You know, part of what's happened, I think, in terms of leadership and economies and all of that is that uh, this will take us a little bit off, but not too much. If, if it's linked to some actual empirical work that I'm doing, is that we've organized our world socially around concepts as we've gone from the tribal primates, where we did it by trial and error, and we had cultural evolution driving just what works for these indigenous peoples, often in a, a mystical or religious vein or, or something. You know, it's not by accident when you're in parts of the world where, for example, pigs, which are lovely to eat, they taste great, uh, but they destroy vegetation very easily. And if you don't have a lot of water, you don't want to be able to have pigs. And suddenly in the Middle East, let's say all the religions say you can't eat pigs. Why? Well, because they freaking destroy the ecology of that area if you ever did do it. So good thing God gave you some direction there. Don't eat the pigs. Um, Whereas in other parts of the world where it's quite friendly, somehow God doesn't whisper that advice. God says other things, you know, like make sure you cook it before you eat it or, you know, so, so things evolve that help us. But we've got in our culture, these ideas of who human beings are, which are so horribly wrong. And the two big ones are uh, in order to get people to do what they yearn for and aspire to, you have to tell them what to do, command and control. Or people are basically selfish. They're basically greedy. Greed is good because if you feed it right, it's the, the invisible hand will produce prosperity. They're both lies. They're not how humans are organized at all. We don't like being told what to do, and we're not inherently greedy but we've got our entire world's economy organized in either one of these two models, both of which are an absolute failure mm-hmm. in terms of being able to bring resources, not an absolute failure, but relative failure. And so um, I think we're, we're trying to find a way of how to be together that will allow us to cooperate and in community uh, step up to the challenges. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, there's some ways to do that. So I'm part of a kind of an evolutionary economic wing. Okay. That are linking what you do is what you get to what uh, Eleanor Ostrom won a Nobel Prize for in economics because the economists saw this train wreck between the two wings of the left and the right and, and wanted a middle path. And, 
Lynn Ostrom won the Nobel in economics, who's a political scientist, for showing that indigenous peoples have been protecting their forests, their lakes, their rivers, their fisheries, their streams for thousands of years without command and control, top-down government control, and without private ownership. And the way that they've done it is by cooperation that fits evolutionary principles. So we kind of get what we deserve in one sense, but I wonder if we could bring forward thinking that is evidence-based. Like, for example, let's take some Nobel Prize-winning principles about how people learn to cooperate and regulate their resources. We've done that. We have a, if you're interested in how we've taken ACT and that and put it together, if you go to a www.prosocial, all one word, prosocial.world, okay. it's free. You can see what's there and it walks out how to put that together. If it, whether it's you, and I've done the re- research on this, whether it's your band uh, and you have to figure out how we're going to decide what music to play or something, if it's a radio station or if it's a charity raising money for. Uh, uh, you know, people in Africa or, or whether it's uh, a group of farmers trying to grow organic vegetables or whatever it is, you can bring these principles of psychological flexibility and of Lynn Ostrom's core design principles and in community do a much better job of working together to solve common problems, much better. Mm-hmm. And it's not that hard. And when you see it, you go like, duh. But if you actually look at your groups you're in, the groups that are not working well are not doing the da. You know, so it ha- so science helps us. It helps orient us towards ways forward that allow us to see what's useful and to leave the rest. So would you say you've, you've been focused on the individual in your career, fixing the individual with the ACT program, and now you're, you're going to the mic, to the macro? Yeah, because I'm a psychologist, and so the psychological level is the level of the whole individual organism functioning in and with the world, based, interpreted in terms of its, your history and circumstance. But in relationships and in small groups, you're now leaving that level. And you're headed up towards a sociological and anthropological level. And it requires different thinking when you do that, just in the sense that when you go down and you start thinking about, you know, I was using that metaphor of being mayor of a city, well, think of your body that way. I mean, you've got so many different things going on with your underlying neurobiology and genetics and epigenetics and organ systems and brain circuits. And, you know, so, and those require different principles. And then if you look at those and you try to understand it, well, then what is the underlying neurochemical things? Well, but what are the underlying physical things that, so it's nested, you know, science is a unified fabric that goes, you know, from the physical world to the entire world's culture and, and everything that it contains. So yes, your answer is yes, I'm a psychologist, but I'm not the kind that says, oh, really, it's only people, individuals behaving. There's no such thing as groups. You know, no, that's like saying, oh, no, it's not really psychology. It's all your brain. Mm -hmm. That's like saying, oh, no, it's not your brain. It's it's all chemicals. But it's like saying, oh, no, it's not chemicals. It's all gluons. I mean, (laughs) come on. There's one world. And can we be a little more humble about our little piece, our little part of the elephant we're describing? But then 
look for the ways that it overlaps and connects with other levels of analysis and play nice with it. Figure out a way to pass off what you know and to take what others know when that Venn diagram overlaps and keep our eye on this larger human endeavor to bring a scientific understanding to the one world. We've been brilliant at it. I mean, my goodness, you and I are talking because of it. Mm-hmm. But the one place we've been horrible at it is in behavior. So time's out. Quite fundamental, yeah. That's incredible because, I mean, are you 71 now? Is that right? I'm about to turn 72 in a month. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still going. You're still formulating and expanding oh, your reach. And, yeah. Oh, God. I kind of pray, pray to the deities. Like, give, give me another 10, maybe even another 20, yeah. would you? Because I feel like there's some really important things that are just over the horizon and uh, so i'm most excited about not what's behind me but what's ahead and yeah the stuff that we've done is useful like these principles of psychological flexibility you know it's a hack of the mind in a way you know it, yeah. it isn't everything to know but it's the 20 percent that does the 80 percent and yeah. that's not just a prideful thing i mean some of that is actually based on data i've, I've looked at how many of the processes of change really work when you intervene on things in the entire world's literature and the stuff that we've been talking about here and the stuff that's in this work can account for about half of what we know. Um, And if you get a little more flexible for at least 80% of what we know. So, uh, and those, some of those studies are about to come out. So, this kind of bottom-up process focus, you know, try to figure out what the principles are, get less interested about brand name and who the heroes are, what's a tradition or trademark, and you know, focus on the processes. That uh, gives, you know, allows psychology to really play fully and yet not be arrogant and say, oh, no, it's all psychology or, so, yeah. That's what's on, I see ahead of me is how the things that we've done have set us up to play nice with others who really want to think that way. The thing, folks I'm playing with most are the evolutionists because they think that way. <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't gotten used to thinking about how to evolve a society and so forth, other than a few people like my close colleague, David Sloan Wilson. Brilliant. And if you want to talk to somebody who's worth talking to, talk to David Sloan Wilson and check out a few of his books. Um, wow, okay. Because the evolutionists got pushed in a box after World War II and, you know, uh, evolving on purpose meant people died because eugenics was right over the hill, mm-hmm. which turns out is bullshit. You know, Hitler was not a Darwinian. He was just a racist. I mean, uh, they didn't need Darwin. They, he, to do what he did. So we need to wash the evolutionists clean from that unfair spattering that got onto him from the Second World War and, and learn how to use the queen of all the life sciences, the, the one theory without which life sciences make no sense, which is Darwin, how to use that to do, you know, to evolve your life or to evolve your culture or or your band or your community or whatever. Gosh, that's fascinating. So that'll be the next, that's your next phase. That's my next step is to try to take act and really fully nest it inside evolutionary science. 
and then take all of that and try to move behavioral science into the visibility of the culture so that we get to do something with things like, uh, you know, police brutality or, or COVID or um, immigration or racism or things that were, yes, we need psychologists, mm. but not just people to sort of say, oh, it's, it's this or that, but in the sense of some sort of abstract theory, but what are the concrete things we can do? That's a fascinating job you have. I mean, you have the freedom to, to talk to all these people and formulate these, unify your ideas. It's, uh, you're, very, you're a lucky man. We're back to the earlier part of the conversation. You know, they call psychology the queen of the sciences. A lot of scientists don't even think of it as a science, but it's called the queen of the sciences just in this way that every scientist is a behaving person. Yeah, has a brain. So when yeah. they're doing science, they're doing the psychology of science. What else could that be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Oh, well. well, I mean, um, so I have to write a song about your work. Uh, I, I don't think I should do the next one sounds. That's, that's, I'll wait till the book comes out. But um, so what I've got enough songs about my crazy mind and watching myself so how what, what yeah i listened i listened to some of your music i enjoyed it very much and uh, what, a, what a crazy idea to, my friend to say uh, it's a it isn't why i said yes to it but it, but i'm very interested to see what you end up doing uh, oh. with that with that well, word well i you are you already had it you already had a song in uh, learn one learning one derive into putting networks that change what you do <laughs> yeah that diddy yeah that's the relational frame theory, Diddy. The human mind and four silly lines. <laughs> That's your whole career summed up, you said. <laughs> On the, well, the basic science career, yeah. The applied extension of that is more complex. But So what would you... What you know, would actually, what I think, when I hear beautiful songs, uh, almost always, if they land with wisdom... You know what I mean? If they mm -hmm. and and how could you tell it? Well, you know, most a lot of the ones that are popular. Actually, it's not that we're chasing after popularity, but if you look at classics, you know, ones that land and stick, mm -hmm. even the, in the lyrics and stuff, like you know, hackneyed phrases like yeah. "love makes the world go round." Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right on. Yeah, of course. Of course, you know. The but I can't. I can't use that one. <laughs> you can't use that one. You can't use it. But but isn't it, dude, you know? You know. See what I'm saying is that. Yeah. Well, here's what I think is that when I look at at songs that really touch and are uplifted and that resonate and so forth, if you were just say quick, what is act? Which act process is that? Or how does that fit? It's, of course, it fits. Of course, it fits. Yeah. Because people are people, you know, and the, the, do, do I have time for a little rant on this? Go ahead. We've no, there's no time limit on this. Oh, okay. Well, you know, like if you, if you, it's actually in a liberated mind. If you take something like this, the, the arc of a story that really resonates to people, you know, very often there's some sort of hero's journey in there. Mm-hmm. And what is that going to entail? It almost it always entails a normal person suddenly is met with an extraordinary challenge 
And initially they're going like, why me? No, I, I you know, it was like Frodo, you know, like, I don't know, not me. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then you, you, you know, begin to orient towards the challenge, but it's scary and there's all kinds of emotions that are, or self-aggrandizing prideful things or, uh, and all kinds of thoughts are crowding in that restrict you. But then, and there's like that dark night of the soul of who am I even and what, and either by some sort of transformation of how you think about yourself or often through your mates, your your friends coming in, or sometimes through magic or wizardry or something, something happens where you find a strength or a resource. You find a way of being and a deeper sense of, of purpose and of, of, an empowering sense of resources that might allow you to do this. And you accept the challenge and you say, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And you go through these series of steps and you constantly slip, but you come back and you slip and you come back and it, and it looks like it'll never work, but you come back, you hang on, you know, the, 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 the you know, the direction, the thing on the bus matters, you know, the, the passengers are shrieking to mix those metaphors. And through your one step at a time persistence, you find the golden fleece. You throw the ring into the fire. You know, you, you make it happen with these newfound resources and often with your friends in community. Yeah? And then it assumes normality again. And you're on the train station, uh, you know, and Harry Potter's putting his son on the Hogwarts Express for the next round, the next adventure, the next generation to face their journey. Well, you know, why does that resonate so much? Why do we, uh, why are we moved to tears by songs that are about love and loss? And why are we, well, because these, these are our human journey and the psychological flexibility processes, I don't know if you noticed it, but I just walked through all six of them of this kind of conceptualized self that doesn't include a hero's journey that's faced by difficult emotions and difficult thoughts, but learns to find a place where the deeper sense of self and also connection with others that brings you into that challenge where the values you have matters, where you can organize your behavior in community with others around it. And you walk through that challenge and you, find a way forward that's spinning around the six psychological flexibility processes ah, in the book okay yeah you just spin right through these processes of the negative ones of being entangled with a vision of yourself and entangled you know avoidant of emotions entangled with thoughts you know uh, not able to attend properly to what's going on in your world and disconnected from your values and behaving impulsively or procrastinating and when you flip it you find this more spiritual sense of self that's bigger and broader from which you can think and feel more flexibly come into the present moment see what's at stake embrace those values and organize your behavior around it you know, it's in all Beowulf, it's in all the great stories. And I think it's in the great songs too. It's just there. God, you're asking a lot though, Stephen. I mean, you're asking for a, 
<laughs> a great tragedy megalith the greatest song of all time i think you just can you bring the bar down a little bit well you know but but where that journey starts is in this uh, sense of self this this sense of self that is not pointed towards and characterized but is the place from which and it starts with this more spiritual sense of self that you already are singing about. And yeah, I don't, I'm not giving you a challenge so much as saying, <laughs> you know what art and literature and dance and music has been doing from the beginning is touching the human heart in terms of what are the processes that enchain us or liberate us. And I'm on a journey as a Western geeky science type uh, it's the same journey, right. you know, and uh, so I, I think anything you do, if it resonates deeply with your uh, heart and aspirations, will resonate with uh, our conversation. And <laughs> okay, all right. Well, it's very general, but uh, if that's is there something more specific <laughs> you can na narrow it down a little. Well, I gave you, I gave you a, quite a good challenge. You had to all write. Right, the, all right, the, I just feel uh, like one of your students Bale, here. Beowulf in, uh, in, or Harry Potter in one minute. <laughs> I just feel like one of your students who has to write their thesis on, and you've given them, you say it can be about anything. And I mean, uh, gosh. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, I, I think if, what is the immediate journey that, people who are listening have right almost always the immediate journey begins with a sense that there's more to me than just this voice within or the problems that i have or whatever you catch that there's a whole human being who maybe you don't even believe it maybe you don't say those words maybe too scary but that that you know awareness resides and and you can i mean even at the moment that you're at all interested in, in change, transformation, progress, or anything, there's a part of you that you may not even say out loud for fear it would, you know, you'd have to knock on wood and it would jinx it, but that says you can, yeah? That it, there's possibility here. Okay. But then the first thing they're going to hit is it's scary and there's a voice that says you can't. And... Um, wants you to live your life inside a little box, mm -hmm. inside a cage that's made out of rice paper with bars printed on it, and little signs that says, you can never open this door, and this cage will never be broken out of, yeah. And I think a lot of folks live their lives inside these little rice paper cages, trying to be okay and waiting for it to end, and maybe if I smoke enough weed or drink another six pack, It'll all be something I can survive. Okay, so don't limit. Don't be not limited. Yeah. Of uh, in your pain, you find your values, and your values, you find your pain. That 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 your guide to being able to move forward is right there, even inside that entanglement, inside that suffering. It's not your enemy. It's actually pointing. It's like a flashlight pointing into the darkness if you know how to, how to look. 
you know, flip your pain over and you'll find the things that you aspire to. And if you could take that you can part and notice the voice, what if you move towards what is on the other side of that pain? Yeah, I get that, yeah. You know, like if you're betrayed in love, why did it hurt so much? Because love matters. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you would prefer that it didn't because you're going <laughs> to suffer. If you care, you're going to suffer. And yet you suffer even more if you try to pretend you don't. Yeah. So I don't know. Some, and, oh, there's a lot of... Uh, space to play in, but uh, yeah, you hurt where you care. Yeah, I, I like that. You hurt where you care. You said that in the book. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, that's wonderful. I people, mean, people are used to using their their sweet thoughts as a guide and hoping, and then they turn it into sugar soup. They're not used to using their pain as a guide. And you know that Ted talk that you saw, you know, my night on the carpet. I mean, thank God for panic disorder. Without it, you know, I'd probably still just be trying to make my Vita bigger. Mm. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, I've got yeah. plenty big enough Vita. That's not the point. My point is, you know, I, I was uh, more interested in cranking it out and I can have compassion for it, but Part of me said, no, said, you're just not going to do that. I'm not going to let you. You're not even going to be, teach, be able to teach a class. How about that? Smart Alec. Thank God for that. You know, so there's, there's wisdom even inside our pain if we're willing to open up to it. Yeah, it reminded me of like Eckhart Tolle or, um, yeah. or, or even, even the Buddha or even all the great enlightened uh, another example of a hero's story, and it'll fit that same arc. If you write okay. out Tolle's okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. you write out Siddhartha, yeah. it fits that same arc. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. But, you know, do you know that something like 95% of the human community say that they've had spiritual experiences and that they're important? The other 5% are lying. You know, the, it's in us. It's in us. So maybe, you know, that doesn't mean we're the Buddha or whatever. I mean, we do have heroes who have been especially good. But in small ways, we're, we're, we're doing this all the time of catching in awareness and finding, you know, of opening a door. And so, yeah, I agree. It's, it's the Tolle story. It's the, it's the Buddha story. But I think it's also the human story, which is why people can watch those movies or listen to those songs and say yes, because it resonates with them. They know something about this. It's just their mind doesn't. Don't you think we're spiritual beings having physical experiences? Yeah, almost like that. Yeah, you could talk. I mean, I, I avoid the ontology of it because I don't want to say is about anything. I want to say this is a cup, even though I'm drinking from it. But yeah, absolutely. I'd say in some deep sense of the term, we're spiritual be beings. And uh, that's the human story of how to show up to the, the finite world where you're born, you live and die, where everything you look at, you know, will end mm. on the one hand. 
And on the other, that we have the courage to love and to care, to value, to pursue. Pretty amazing, uh, improbable combination. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I really feel we went much further than I than I hoped we would, and um, we we didn't even go much into your into your work. I advise, I advise everyone to to buy the book, watch the TED talks. Just you have so much of uh, your forty books. Um, yeah. Yeah. If they if they want to be in a conversation with me, if they go to stephenchayes.com and say yes, please send it to me. I'll send them a little mini course on ACT, and then I'll send them newsletters. I don't spam people and they can, there's a one-click opt-out. But occasionally things happen. I have a, an audio book coming out from an outfit called Sounds True in about a week. I've done a lot for therapists. I haven't done that much other than Liberated Mind and Get Out of Your Mind Into Your Life for normal folks. Because right, I'm trying, behind the scenes, yeah. Yeah, I like leading from behind. And I'm trying to get a, a much larger community. I'm stepping forward now because I'm old and I figure yeah. time's up. That's why I wrote A Liberated Mind, is that I don't want to lead the parade because I, I want the best minds to, to decide where it should go. And I'm not the best mind. I just started. But, um, but uh, so I'm trying to step forward now also with some things that are directly to uh, lay folks. This audio course, I think, is pretty good. It has a lot of exercises and things that will play out and answer practical questions. But yeah, that'll people... Be, that'll That'll be available on your website. Yeah, yeah, Amazon and the rest will do it uh, as of July fifteenth. So it's only six days away. It gets released. Oh, okay. I think Fantastic. it's just called it's called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and it has my name. And it's a, an audible book. Or if you still use CDs, which nobody does, they'll send you physical CDs. Okay. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you again for taking the time to speak to me. I was. It's a wonderful experience to read your book. And then halfway through, speak to you, the actual author. It's a, it's it's a very touching experience. Well, I had a blast, and uh, no, wonderful. I'll, I'll send you the song as soon as it's ready. And awesome. Thanks for the opportunity. No, thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. Peace, love, and life.
still love that one. I actually use some of the lyrics to remind me of the technique when I'm driving around or my my scatterbrained mind is running the show. And I actually just recorded a music video to that as well. So if you go to the same YouTube channel, Jack Stafford Pod Songs, in a couple of days I'll be releasing the music video to this song as well. Good timing. Coincidence. Thanks to my uh, musicians, Mauricio Salnicola, Massimino Vozza, my researcher, Dori Verbo. Check out the song on iTunes, Deezer, Spotify, and please share this, the podcast and the song with anyone and everyone. See you next time.